Hello, and welcome to the Machinator Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. It is Saturday, November 5th. The election is Tuesday, November 8th. This long saga that has gone on far longer than, than anyone would voluntarily allow it to is, is coming to an end. Uh, as the news cycle has gotten shorter, elections have only gotten longer. This one has gone on uh, basically two years, it feels, depending on where you start counting. But it's going to end. It's probably going to end with Hillary Clinton becoming the next U.S. president, the first woman president. She's probably going to get a very small Democratic majority in the Senate and a small Republican majority in the House to work with. And I'll, I'll talk about why, even though the polls have tightened, I... I'm still confident that, that Hillary is going to pull this one out. It has been a stressful week of refreshing 538, but uh, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that in a second. But it, for, for now, I, I just want to take a moment to um, describe Hillary Clinton's policies. <laughs> I've done some of that on this podcast, especially when it was her versus Bernie. But uh, and I will also talk about how this podcast has been consumed by Donald Trump. But um, but Hillary Clinton's probably going to be the next president. And even if she's not, the policies that she's put forward, I think, broadly define the direction that the Democratic Party is moving in and has moved in with help from people like Bernie Sanders. It doesn't cover everything, but it covers a lot of it. And uh, fortunately, good people like Dylan Matthews of Vox have already done some of the research for this for me, so instead of having to read through all our policy papers and summarize it in some kind of pithy way for you, I'm just going to read what Dylan Matthews wrote recently for Vox in summing up Hillary Clinton's policies. Obviously, this is not a, a complete uh, summary, but but it's pretty good. So this is imagining that Hillary Clinton, uh, be you know, one becomes president, and two, this is more magical thinking. Uh, that she is just able to enact everything that she has put forward. So, the vast majority of families would be able to send children to public colleges and universities tuition-free. Four-year-olds would have universal access to pre-K, and child care would be massively subsidized so as to cap costs at 10% of a family's income. That's, you know, I have a kid that, that is... Uh, those would be some serious subsidies. All workers would get 12 weeks paid family leave and 12 weeks paid medical leave in case they need to care for a new child, a sick family member, or themselves. The child tax credit would be doubled for families with young children and made available to poor families with little earnings. 11 million undocumented immigrants would gain a pathway to citizenship, which they almost did with the Republican Senate in 2013. Not going to get into that. Medicare would be expanded to people as young as 55, as it would have been had it not been for Joe friggin' Lieberman not getting into that either, and allowed to negotiate down drug prices with pharmaceutical companies, and every state would have a robust public option. All states would expand Medicaid coverage to anyone living underneath the poverty line, and subsidies for health care on the exchanges would be more generous. The government would cover out-of-pocket health costs through the tax code. Federal money would be able to pay for abortions for people with government-paid insurance. Social Security benefits would increase. The minimum wage would be at least $12, maybe $15 an hour, and firms could unionize through card check rather than having to go through elections. 
there would be an injection of $500 billion, $270 billion of which would come from federal coffers into rebuilding roads, highways, mass transit, airports, seaports, broadband networks, electrical grids, water pipes, and other forms of infrastructure. This would be the largest public works push from the federal government since the building of the interstate highways system in the 1950s. Much of that money would go to directly hiring workers, particularly youth in minority communities. The Clinton campaign estimates that the $500 billion would create about 6.5 million jobs, more than half of which come from public money, end quote. So if you kind of take a generic Democrat and say, what do you want for domestic policy? You know, give me your wish list of things that are sort of loosely imaginable, not in this Congress, but, you know, you don't get like the total magic wand of, you know, total electoral reform, say, and all sorts of other fun stuff. But uh, but, but you get to pass you know, your, your sort of core democratic policies. It would look something like this. Uh, a strengthened Obamacare, a, a big, um, a lot of infrastructure spending. Uh, Hillary Clinton is, is known for her uh, her, her advocacy around children and child care and, and caring for parents. And so there's, there's a lot of good stuff about that in there. Spending on education. And, and of course, all of this costs a whole lot of money, but we're, we're the U.S. We can pay for these things. We just have to decide that it's a priority uh, instead of, you know, wars and tax cuts for rich people. Those were the main priorities under the Bush administration. Fun times. So anyway, the the point I want to make, well, first of all, I, I think those are good policies and, you know, reasonable ones to put forward as the Democratic standard bearer Two, yeah, like I was saying, I think even though the Democratic Party pulls from a lot of different places in, in terms of demographics and parts of the country, I feel like it's fairly united, especially when you kind of bake in... Um, what Bernie Sanders based his campaign around, uh, which was you know more around campaign finance and having people have more of a voice in democracy, those were more his priorities. Whereas Hillary Clinton is not really trying to change the game. If there's a, a split in the Demo Democratic Party, it's perhaps between the more Sandersy wing that is saying we need to change the rules of the game and that's the most important thing and the more Clintony wing which is saying changing the rules is hard there might be unintended consequences let's advance our our priorities in terms of having a better healthcare system a better education system etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm going to talk about the republican party and how deeply ununited they are in a moment. I, I want to take a sec to talk about the election, the, you know, the thing that this whole podcast has been about that's happening on Tuesday. So Hillary Clinton was dominating the polls until very recently, starting around uh, when I recorded my the last episode of the Walkivator podcast, when I was just going on and on about how Hillary's going to win, everything's going to be fine. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about which wing of the Republican Party to feel more sad for. Answer, not really either. Since that happened, uh, first of all, uh, the uh, premiums in Obamacare, it was reported that they're going up significantly in 2017. That's not good, either for the election or for people who are trying to get health insurance on the exchanges. And, uh, and two, <laughs> more emails did not come out. 
Well, I guess more emails did come out. You know, thank you, WikiLeaks. But the the big news was that more emails were discovered. Well, the FBI was investigating Anthony Weiner. It turned out he had emails from Huma Abedin on on his computer. I'm I'm not going to bother to dredge up the details. But uh, but long story short, more emails were discovered. We don't know what's in them. The FBI hasn't dug through them. It's possible that a lot of them are just copies of emails that the FBI already has dug through. It's very possible that there's nothing of real importance on these email in ter- on e- emails in terms of um, you know determining whether or not Hillary Clinton committed some kind of crime or anything that she she could be sentenced for or indicted for. Uh, all of that is unlikely to. Yeah, it's unlikely any of that's going to happen. But James Comey, you know, nonpartisan FBI director that he is, decided that it would be the prudent thing to do to go against FBI policy and write a letter to Congress being saying, you know, hey, just so you know, we're, we're looking into some more stuff. I just thought, you know, it would be the right thing to do to let you guys know. And this became the big story. And around then, uh, the polls started tightening quite a lot. And on 538, which aggregates all the polls and, you know, factors in how reliable each one is, Hillary Clinton's chances of winning the presidency went from something like 85% to now something like 64%. 85 we can work with. 85 means, yeah, things could go suddenly terribly in the last couple days, but she's probably going to win. 64%. That, that's bad. That's really bad. That, that means, you know, she's still probably going to win, but she might lose to uh, what one friend of mine described as the orange meteor headed for our democracy. And, and make no mistake, Trump is an orange meteor headed for our democracy. However, the polling we, we have is, is pretty good at taking on a, a really monumental task which is, for a reasonable cost, try to, you know, figure out how is Colorado going to go? How is Pennsylvania going to go? Pennsylvania's a huge state with many millions of people, and you've got, uh, you've got some phones and computers to figure out how they're going to vote. That's, that's a very difficult task. And uh, polling companies obviously have developed a lot of different methods and they obviously disagree on their methods a lot of the time and a lot of it's proprietary so they're not uh, sharing these methods with each other so some of them can get pretty wonky and not wonky like political and complicated I mean like lopsided and weird Uh, anyway um, so I'd say on the whole the polls are doing a bang-up job of of attempting this monumental task however one, millions of people have already voted. And I don't know the degree to which polls are factoring that in. I don't think they really are. And uh, and the early voting numbers that we have seem to favor Hillary Clinton. Uh, not by a ton in some states. However, it does show a, a solid uptick in the Latino vote. And that would make sense given that uh, the Republican nominee is, well, let's just say, a, a person who might motivate the Latino vote to turn out and try to stop him. And it's, it's, 
shoring up Hillary's support and her chances of winning states like Nevada, is a biggie, Florida, um, Colorado, places with large Hispanic populations are, are now looking better for Hillary. And that's huge because right now in 538's model, Nevada is, uh, is, is 50-50. I think it's actually slightly for Trump. It's something like 53, 54% for Trump, as in likely to go for Trump, not, not that he has that amount in the polls. Uh, but according to 538 author Harry Enten, he's actually very unlikely to win Nevada because the, the early vote numbers show that Hillary Clinton likely has a large lead. They haven't opened the votes yet, even though many people just assume they do. Uh, those votes are not counted, but from what we can tell about them, and Nevada apparently is odd in that it will just publish party registration of, um, of who's voted. So if, if like 63 Democrats and 42 Republicans have voted in Nevada, that is public information to work with. So upshot of all that is uh, we're, I, I think we're still looking good. And by we, I mean Hillary Clinton and America. And I wasn't trying to make a pun with the word upshot, but the upshot is kind of the 538 equivalent by the New York Times. And according to the upshot, Hillary Clinton is still something like an 85% chance to win the presidency. She was up in the 90s, uh, back in the, the days of her, her just like winning all the polls by like, you know, seven plus percent and people talking about, oh, maybe she could, maybe the Democrats could take the House or, you know, maybe, you know, all these kind of like interesting disaster scenarios for the GOP. People aren't talking about those so much anymore. But what we have right now is a disaster scenario for the GOP. It, it's already played out. We, we are just watching the the most recent episode of this television show called The Republican Party turns into a fiery mess over multiple years. And I think there's a fairly clear split, a fairly describable split uh, among the GOP. On one hand, we've got uh, what I'm calling kind of the donor class, which is you can you can start it with Reagan as kind of the the arch, you know, the the er figure of this this side of their party you know everyone wants to claim reagan as their own but but he's kind of the you, you you'd most ally him with um so on my list i've got reagan and rand romney ryan that's what my notes say and then arrow donor class and and this is sort of the intellectual core of the old republican party the uh you know Let's give money to rich people, or let's just leave the money where it is. Let's not do much with taxes, except for fund a robust military, and let's see how things shake out. Uh, you know, it's somewhat libertarian, um, and it uh, you know ha has more of an intellectual backing than uh, than the other half, which um, which is more a, a populist core, and that of course is Trump. It's Sarah Palin. It's Paula Page. Not not as you know, um, not not quite the heavy hitters of the last list. And this side of the party is more authoritarian. It's more anti-intellectual, and frankly, it's racist. And that's a pretty unflattering portrait to paint. 
but it's also accurate. I'm, I'm sorry to have to say this about millions and millions of people who I share a country with, but but it's clearly racist. We we don't have to sugarcoat this. Um, you know, when when you see when when you uh, delve into Trumpland Twitter, which I don't do very often, but it, it's not like you know, just the New York Times finds the like one racist person and, and reports on them. They are not hard to find. And then there might be some not so racist, silent wing of the Trump support that, uh, but 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 they're not really showing themselves. It's it's more this this group that thinks that that is totally unfazed by how Trump can contradict something on video. It, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> it, like. It's like that video is wrong. It's like, could you believe me or my lying eyes? Or your lying eyes, sorry. All the eyes are lying. Trump can even contradict something that he said the day before, or he said earlier in the interview, or, or was reported the other way by every news source. It, it doesn't matter. It, it's the liberal media. It, And the Republican Party has a couple problems with this. The, the main one being that this very large wing of it is already there and is not going away anytime soon and assuming Trump loses <coughs> excuse me assuming Trump loses is not just going to be like okay that was fun but uh, maybe let's let's go back to you know just kind of trickle down economics and that that stuff and you know, maybe immigration's okay some of the time you know, maybe that would actually help the economy in some ways. You guys are, you were right about some stuff. We just kind of got worked up there. They're not going to say that at all. They are going to think the election is stolen. Some of them already do think the election is stolen. And so, so yeah, that that's one problem is that that wing already exists and it's not going anywhere. Another problem is that going that direction might be the better strategic move for the Republican Party. As they can... They can try to throw on the brakes here and try to make amends with Latinos and black people and young people and basically make a bunch of concessions to the Democratic Party. That's kind of what they tried to do after 2012, after Mitt Romney did so poorly with Hispanics. But the, the populist base of the party doesn't seem to want to go there. And so if you're starting to lose ground to Democrats in states like Arizona and, and Florida might become a more solidly Democratic place and Texas is even, you know, not quite there yet, but you can start to see it as, as a potential Democratic prize. Georgia uh, could is probably not going to go Democratic this election, but could be by the next election. North Carolina, maybe South Carolina, you can start to think of as, as more solidly Democratic states. South Carolina is going to go Republican this time. But North Carolina is starting to feel like it's going to be more in the Democratic column, whichever way it goes this time. And it's probably the most 50-50 state right now. So if you assume that the Democrats basically keep the coasts, which they more or less probably will, and, uh, and they start to make these encroachments like Arizona and Georgia, where do you go if you're the Republican Party? You can either try to, you know, become more centrist. There seems to be no appetite for that in any part of the party. Or you can go hard for like white working class people who uh, this economy is not really working out for. Automation is eating their jobs. Um, 
globalization's eating their jobs. The fact that uh, a CEO can say, oh, I need someone to, um, uh, let's say, do a bunch of data entry. Uh, I could hire a person and train them and, you know, give them vacation days and give them benefits because we're a company that gives benefits and, uh, you know, have them work 40 hours a week. And once they're done with this big project that we need to do through March, uh, just, you know, we'll find out, find whatever else work we can for them. Um, they could do that or they could just go online and, you know, go to any number of, uh, contractor sites and just get someone to do just that job and not give them benefits and call and like let the the contracting company handle all that stuff. That's a way better deal for the CEO. Anyway, whole lot of that going on. And all of that is eating away at what used to be the core of the American middle class. And what's actually happening is what I described, but it's, there's a bunch of people who you can kind of say, no, it's, it's not, what Owen said, it's NAFTA, it's uh, it's immigration, uh, it's uh, our trade policies, I guess that's NAFTA. And those people you might be able to get. And then you might have a shot at Michigan, at Pennsylvania starting to look more like a swing state. Uh, maybe Wisconsin you can get. And, and so it, it's funny, it's like the, the, the Democrats start eating away at even like the southern coasts at, uh, at more and more of the like... Uh, states with large minority populations, and it's kind of just the white people left in the Republican Party. The, that is, um, I mean, it's that that reality is largely already here. But that, if you want to, if you're not thinking like ten years, twenty years out for the Republican Party, you're thinking the next election, like 2018, 2020. That's probably the direction you go, just strategically. Like if you can take Pennsylvania, all right, you're back in the game. If you've, if you can really eat away at the what's become a Democratic stronghold in the Midwest, then yeah, you, you might even be able to win the next election. And so that is both a solution and a major problem for the Republican Party because, again, it, it might get them through the next election or two, but uh, I think the this like millennial voters are are not going to be okay with that. And as they become a more and more significant voting block, and as the boomers become a less significant voting block, to put it that diplomatically, you know, I, I don't know what happens to the Republican Party. I, I don't think the re Republicans know what happened to the Republican Party. One thing I will say about this is that the Republican donors, I think, are more in the, the Romney-Ryan wing of things. And to the degree that they can swing elections, which, you know, money still does the trick a lot of the time, uh, they can kind of be a mitigating force here. It, when, when there's room for a more populist candidate, then it's probably going to swing more toward the, like, liberal conspiracy, the media's against us, climate change is, you know, a hoax invented by the socialists and the Chinese to keep down the common man, et cetera, et cetera. To the degree that that message is able to penetrate, then, and, you know, obviously in the districts where that message resonates, it, it I think, will continue to do so in the GOP. That, that wing of the party has become kind of this island nation that doesn't like outsiders, whether they are from within or without their own country, and 
doesn't believe what you know anyone contradicting them and has its own kind of norms and culture and it's become a point of fascination and sometimes fear when it looks like they they might win something uh for me and for the rest of the country whereas the candidate like hillary clinton who is basically just representing the the party in a pretty standard way that you would expect going in uh, with, uh, you know, no huge surprises in her platform. Uh, she is married to the Democratic president of, you know, three presidents ago. It, she she is kind of what you'd come up with if you're going to come up with kind of the generic Democratic candidate. And, you know, I, I'm I, that sounds bad, but I think in a lot of ways it's good. I think your, your party standard bearer generally shouldn't come out of left field. It should feel like, okay, like we, we've got this coalition and we can all kind of agree on a lot of this stuff. So, and this person seems like a good leader who's had experience enacting these policies and they, they're kind of getting behind all the policies that most of us want. That should probably be it most of the time when you're not in crazy town or there isn't some big crisis that you're dealing with. Uh, the GOP is in crazy town and they lost their map, and no one in Crazy Town can give them directions out of there. They, everyone's going to come out with an article being like, here's what the Republicans need to do. I, I don't know what they need to do. I mean, it would be nice if they started respecting journalism in a way where, you know, when every journalist is like, no, actually, the last 10 things that Donald Trump just said, like, he clearly just made them up or he clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. If messages like that can start penetrating, then great, but they haven't for for all of his candidacy and for a lot of stuff before that, climate change being the biggest, scariest example of that. As you know, I am a big proponent of the universal basic income. Please subscribe to that podcast on iTunes as well, if you have not, or to the you know, podcasting subscription service of your choice. I don't think that magically solves all these problems, but I do think some of these problems come from a sense of despair and not knowing what you're worth to a society. And I think a basic income doesn't solve all that, but it does alleviate some of those problems. I, I want to close this little section and start to bring this episode to a close with um, one story. I don't think I've told it on here. Even if I have, I think it's worth another telling. Quick water sip. This episode is brought to you by water. Ask about it at your faucet. I, I worked for the Obama campaign in 2008 in North Carolina in a uh, in a small town that was had been decimated by globalization. You, I would drive around and I would see these textile factories. It used to be a big textile county. The they were empty. They were like weird like ramshackle warehouses where there used to be jobs. And now it just felt like there were fast food places and like places related to cars. And I wasn't sure where everyone else worked or if they worked. Anyway, <clears throat> I was at a diner uh, a few days before the election. And it's easy to forget the big topic in some circles in 2008 was, is Barack Obama a Muslim terrorist? This soaked up a significant percent of my, my time and energy was trying to talk people down from the idea that Barack Obama was a, you know, some 
some amalgamation of Kenyan socialist Muslim terrorist in some truly like elaborate decades long plot to destroy America almost all the way through his presidency. I, I don't think he is, you know, maybe he's, he's got some real shenanigans planned for us in the last few days, but I think we dodged that bullet. Anyway, I'm sitting in a diner in, in this, this part of North Carolina, this town and uh, there's a family having lunch next to me, and like the young, like uh, you know, probably college age kid of the family was like the one Obama guy, and he's he's taking attacks from all sides, from like his dad, his uncle, his older brother. And they're all talking about the election, and then the older brother, you know, I'm, I'm assuming these roles just based on appearance. The older brother, you know, tries to kind of chart this middle course. Of, uh, you know, just all all the these elections that are swirling around, sorry, these issues that are swirling around the election. And and he says, you know, I I don't think Barack Obama is a terrorist, but he's maybe a little bit more of a terrorist than John McCain. (laughs) And and that that just blew my mind. I, I had to like, like laugh into my coffee to I, I was like just sitting there by myself, like probably making weird noises because I, I didn't want to like get into a long conversation with this family about how that statement just is so divorced, not even from logic, from like the meaning of words. And now that guy almost feels reasonable. Now he feels like the guy who's, who's saying like, okay, he's he's not. I mean, he's not a terrorist, but he's just like. A little bit of a terror, like a scale of like one to terrorist. He's like a three, maybe a four. I, I feel like the people who were kind of had had one toe in the maybe he's not a terrorist part of their mind <clears throat> have just spent the last eight years going full fledged into the like they're all out to get us world. It's unfair to say all of them. But enough of them to nominate one Donald Trump, who, who as we've discussed and don't really need to get into, is a, a just a terrible person with no qualifications to be president. And because this island nation is so compelling to, to look at and talk about, we haven't really talked about policy very much in this election. And to the degree that we have, it's been somewhat divorced from reality. Um, and you kind of have to, to seek out these, these sort of like niche policy discussions to get into things like, what should the U.S. actually do? And what would, you know, what does the research say on things like education policy and climate change and, uh, in, in, you know, the horrible stuff going on in Syria? I feel like even that is not that much of a topic in this election. And and we do need to get back to that stuff. And, and hopefully the degree to which the election is a distraction is, is doesn't really matter because um, some of those decisions are just kind of happening without us. And that's not really how supposed to how democracy is supposed to democracy is supposed to work. I think it's fair to say that that some part of our democracy is broken and that has to do with the media. It has to do with how we structure our elections. But for now, I'm, I'm not really thinking about that. I'm just thinking about getting through Tuesday 
and uh, and seeing this thing through and and having the orange asteroid not hit us this time. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Wonka Vader podcast, to all the episodes of the Wonka Vader podcast that you've listened to. Uh, this has, has been a, a long journey. <laughs> thank you for taking it with me. Uh, I will have uh, at least another episode or two to uh, kind of wrap things up. And after the election, though, once, once we feel like this thing kind of wrapped up and we have a new president... I am probably going to wind this podcast down. I very much reserve the right to flip on my microphone and go on a political rant because, uh, you know, it's a free country and <laughs> if you can't do that, then what can you do? But, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, let's hope Tuesday is a great day.